All right. Well, guys, Doug Rutt was a Initially wanted to be here to finish this, our missions focus today, but he is unfortunately not able to be here. Some of you might have heard, um, but Doug's wife, Jackie, her mom went home to be with the Lord this week. So Doug is with uh, her family there in South Carolina. So if you would keep the Rutt family and the outlaw family in your prayers, um, I know they'd really appreciate that. Um, But the Lord provides all the time, and we have a special treat and a special guest. Um, You guys may know Wayne Mangum. He has been um, a leader in our, a volunteer leader in our uh, missions ministry for several years, and he just really has a heart for the lost and especially for the unreached people group. So, if you guys would give a warm welcome, Wayne Mangum. <laughs> awesome. Wow. Thank you so much. Wow. Who's, who's screaming out there? Oh, my Intrizo guys. One, uh, one of the fun things about doing this is, for several services now, Matt's such a nice guy. I've got to hear Matt try to introduce someone really without any credentials, and you've done a, an amazing job doing that. But I am not a pastor. Um, I'm not on staff. Uh, I am not a committed missionary. I've spent a few weeks of my life in, uh, in a missionary context, but not much. Uh, I, you say, well, what are you doing here? Who are you? I am one of you. So consider this in sports term as a team meeting led by a player. This is not a sermon, but I feel like by me being vulnerable and sharing what God has taught me in particular related to missions may be used by God to speak to you this morning, and that's my prayer. Uh, As Matt mentioned, uh, we all uh, mourn with with Jackie and Doug and the loss of of her mother. I actually found out about um, that Wednesday. Uh, It was a busy day at work. I I, um, work normal hours, nine to five, extremely busy, um, Wednesday mid-morning, see on my cell phone I'm receiving a call from Doug Rutt, and I thought, well, okay, we often play tennis on Thursday, he's calling me to talk about that. Well, I, I, I answer the call, and um, the first words out of his mouth were, Jackie's mom passed away 10 minutes ago, can I ask you to do me a favor? And so I said, Doug, let me put you on hold. I need to pull up my Outlook and check my schedule, see when I have openings. And Doug, don't ask me to do anything that's going to take me outside of my comfort zone. I'll try to work. I mean, seriously, do you think that's how the conversation went? Uh, I said, absolutely, Doug, whatever you want me to do. I will be more cautious in saying that perhaps <laughs> next time. Because if, if you think about it, this was Wednesday morning, and there we have a Thursday night service. Um, so, but absolutely committed to do whatever he asked me to do. And that's what I want to challenge us with. I don't know if you really thought about the words you were praying during the song service, but there was one line in there that struck me. Lord, do with me what you will. When you said that, did you really mean that? Do with me what you will. And I, I'm, I'm not talking about God, show me your will. And 
I may or may not decide to do that. What we're talking about is just with me and Doug. It's a predetermined commitment to follow God's will before you know what God's asking you to do. That's challenging. That's challenging for me. I used to think clearly, absolutely, I'll do whatever God wants me to do. And God led me through a situation where he exposed a part of me that said, no, I, I, have, I have limitations. I put restrictions on what I will want to do for God. I <clears throat> had the opportunity a, a year or two ago to sell a business that I'm part owner in. And I felt like uh, if that deal went through, I wouldn't have to work anymore. And I remember I, I shared with a few guys here, just asked to, for them to pray through that decision with me. And I remember having lunch with one of those guys. And during the course of that meal, very sincerely, I said, you know, one of the best parts of doing this or considering doing this and one of the things I'm most excited about is that I can say to God, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. You want me to do full-time ministry somewhere in the States? I'm, I'm yours. I have no strings. You want me to go and do ministry in a cross-cultural setting? You, that's just, I am going to be free to do whatever God wants me to do. I remember very clearly driving back to work and in the car, just being overwhelmed with this sense of guilt, with the Spirit telling me, or asking me, why aren't you saying that now as you drive back to work? God, I'll, you know, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll minister however you want me to minister, full-time, part-time, another setting, whatever. I found out, I was, it was revealed to me that I had limitations on what I allowed to God to do in my life and how I would follow God. Do you have a predetermined commitment to follow God's will before he even reveals it to you? There is a model of that in scripture. We're gonna look at Genesis 12, the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, two and three, and the scripture's on the screen. Perhaps, uh, some of the most important verses of scripture, God, the creator, decides to make a covenant with a man which influences us still today. God says to Abraham in verse two of Genesis 12, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and we experience those blessings because of this covenant that God made with Abraham. So who is this Abraham? Who is the human that God, the creator, decided to make a covenant with? Well, chapter 12 doesn't start with verse two. It starts with verse one. So let's go back and, and learn about Abraham. Verse one of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, so leave what's familiar. Go from your father's house, go from your, your relatives. And where is God instructing Abraham to go? What's the next line? Go to the land which I will show you. 
God didn't drop a pin on Abram's GPS and say, this is where you're going to go. Now evaluate whether you want to do that or not. God said, Abram, pick up, leave what's familiar, leave the comforts of home, go. Where am I going, God? I'll show you. Do we have that level of commitment, that unconditional, predetermined commitment to follow God's will? You say, well, that's, that sounds extreme. Well, let me, let me explain it in a different way. I, I taught in senior high last Sunday. Some of you may have been there, guys. Um, but I use this illustration. Senior high schooler students often, or several of them, are at a point in their life where they're making decisions regarding college, career. And I said, okay, students, would you entrust your mom and dad to decide for you where to go to school? Would you say to them, I'll go to school wherever you decide is best for me to go? And would you let them decide your career? And actually through another scenario in there, if you are going to get married, would you let your mom or dad pick out your spouse? And there was a resounding silence. Because <laughs> they probably knew I would tell on them if they said no. Uh, when I was their age, I would certainly have said no. But think of that. What would they have to believe about their mom and dad in order to say, yeah, I, I would let my mom and dad decide where I went to school. I'd let them decide what career I go into. I'd even let them pick my spouse. What would they have to believe about their parents? They have to trust them. They have to believe that their parents know best. They have to believe that their parents love them. They have to believe that their parents are wise. They have to believe that their parents know them, know what would be a good fit. Let's go back to the context of our struggle with totally abandoning our will to God. What would we have to believe about God? And is our believing about God skewed in some way? Do we believe that God loves us? Do we believe that God knows what's best for us? Do we believe God knows us? And do we believe God is wise? Or honestly, there's likely a trace of, God, I think I know better what's best for me than you. So, unconditional, predetermined commitment to follow God, even if it leads us in a cross-cultural setting like the Olams are enjoying. You think, that's radical. That is reserved for those like the Olams or those very mature Christians. Extreme, radical. And I, I ask you, and I ask myself, is it radical? Or is that just the essence of Christianity? What did you sign up for when you signed up to be a Christ follower, when you committed your life to Christ? Place yourself in this scenario. You're sharing with a friend. You're sharing the gospel to a non-believer. And the friend says to you, I believe what you say. I would like to follow Christ and become a Christian you are now going to lead that friend in a prayer of salvation. What are some components that would be in that prayer of salvation? I'm sorry. Confession of sin. 
believing in Christ, um, acknowledging that I can't get to God by myself, and trusting that Christ's sacrifice took care of my penalty for my sin. You know what sometimes is left out is I give my life to God. God is my Lord. Look at Romans 10, 9. This is the verse I would go back to if I was leading someone in that prayer. Romans 10, 9, clearly two criteria for becoming a Christ follower. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two criteria. The second first. Second is believing everything God's word says about Christ. That he not only rose from the dead, but he came from God, virgin born, lived a sinless life, was crucified, suffered the penalty for my sin, was raised from the dead, and now is with the Father in heaven. Second criteria. What's the first criteria? Going back to the beginning. That if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord. Criteria for becoming a Christ follower. What does that mean? I think Paul, in Romans 1.1, the very first book, very first verse of this book, by him saying, I am a slave of God. I'm a slave of Christ. I think that's what he means. Jesus is Lord. A slave doesn't wake up in the morning and think, okay, I think I'll sleep another 15 minutes. Lays in bed a little bit longer. Gets up. What do I want for breakfast? I've got a lot of free time today. What, how can I feel that free time? What can I do to please myself? Slave is told what to do by the master. When we signed up to be a Christian, truly, we said, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my Savior, but you are my Lord. How would Jesus himself answer the question, what's required to follow me? If you consider Luke 9, Luke 9, 23, Jesus himself says, if anyone wishes to come after me, what does he have to do? Has to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, and thinking of that verse, often we'll think of Jesus on the cross, but it doesn't say you have to go on the cross. It says you have to take up your cross daily. I certainly think about the death of Christ But when I think of the concept of taking up my cross, I think more about the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was in the garden asking the Father, no, I I don't want to go through with this. There's got to be another way. But the conclusion of that prayer with his Father was what? Not my will, but yours be done. To me, that's taking up our cross. Every day, daily, a commitment, God, I want to follow your will, even if it doesn't coincide with what I want to do today. Did I have to adjust my schedule when I received the call from Doug and agreed to do this? A bit, yes. Did it cause a little stress? A bit, yes. But would I say yes to Doug more freely than saying yes to God? One thing is no one knows what God is calling me to do. But think of that. If we are true followers of Christ in his own words, Jesus said to follow me, you have to commit your will to mine. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18. 
No missions talk would be complete without the Great Commission. So what does that say? Setting is Jesus has risen from the dead, still on earth, not yet ascended to the Father. He's talking to his Christ followers. Familiar passage, perhaps. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Familiar verse. One thought that maybe you haven't considered in studying that verse is, that it doesn't begin with a command. It begins with a claim. It begins with Jesus' claim that all authority is his. God has given him all authority. You think of the life of Christ, and you think of those things he has authority over. Certainly death, disease, disability, Satan. But do you ever think about me and you? God has authority over me. God, Jesus, God has given Jesus authority over you and me. That is the foundation of the command to go. That's why Jesus can say to us as his followers, go make disciples of all nations. So you, th- you think, well, unconditional commitment to, to follow God even before we know what it is. Um, that's... That's challenging. We're familiar with that verse that we just read. Are we really committed to follow and obey God and Jesus as he commands us to go make disciples? And does our life reflect the fact that we are involved in making disciples of all nations? I heard it put this way, which I thought was very effective. Suppose I tell my daughter... um, Hypothetically speaking, her room is not tidy in this scenario. So, <laughs> um, so hypothetically, it's, it needs to be cleaned. So I come downstairs, tell my daughter, go upstairs and clean your room. So she leaves, goes upstairs. Three or four minutes later, she comes back and she says, Dad, I memorized what you told me to do. You said go clean your room. Her room is still messy. And she says, I can quote your statement in Greek. (laughs) And do you know, Dad, that clean can be a verb or it could be an adjective? And how would your statement be different if we lived in a one-story house? You know, I'm meeting with my agape group tonight, and We're going to discuss your statement, go clean your room, amongst my friends in our discipleship group tonight. And what we should do is actually, we should carve out a week of the year, and every year, second week in February, we should talk about your statement to go clean your room. Ridiculous, right? I don't think I need to explain to you the connection of that story and God's command, Christ's command, to go make disciples. Are we doing that? Very clear command, but are we doing that? 
Is our room still messy while we're studying and discussing the verses we just read? Many of you have them memorized. Are we doing that? I, um, at one point in my career, was asked to write a personal vision statement or mission statement, uh, which was very healthy for me to do. I think when I shared it in the secular setting I was in, people were shocked at what I came up with. But I really did. I, I, I wanted to live my life in such a way to accomplish the mission that God has given to me. I would ask you, have you ever considered what's your mission in life? Do you have a mission? And is there a common thread between my mission and your mission? I think we read this passage and we have to say yes. My mission statement was, I will glorify God through making disciples of all nations by. And the by were listing certain ministries and certain ways I felt I had the resources or gifts to accomplish that. What about your mission statement? Is it biblically accurate to suggest that each mission statement should start the same way? I will glorify God by making disciples, by, and then you fill in the blank with what ministries God's called you to. If we had a ministry fair, we may have a booth for missions. But isn't it Wouldn't it be more appropriate to take the view that all other booths, besides the mission booths, is for the function, all ministries is for the function of making disciples of all nations, not to the exclusion of making disciples locally, but shouldn't all activities that we do support our overarching mission of going and making disciples of all nations. How would Paul answer the question of what is, what is your mission statement? Let's look at a couple of verses. Romans 1.14. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul recognized that he owed the gospel to those that were outside of the reach of the gospel. He owed it to them. Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul again, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, then the purpose statement. Why did God intercept Paul's life? Paul was not seeking God. Paul was seeking to persecute Christians, and God intercepted his life, revealed the truth of the gospel to Paul, and Paul was, was saved. Why? Think of your story. Why has God chosen you? Why has God put you in a setting and ordered your steps such that you would be exposed to the gospel, given the faith to believe? Paul said, so that. This is why. Paul was saved. God intercepted Paul so that I might preach the gospel among the Gentiles. Paul's stating here, God saved me to be a messenger to those outside of the reach of the gospel currently. You think, well, yeah, that's Paul, greatest apostle ever. What about you and me? Is that, does that call of Paul, does that mindset of Paul really apply to us? Let's look at another common missions verse, Acts 1.8. 
and perhaps look at it in a little different light. Acts 1.8 says, and this is Jesus talking. This is the last recorded words of Jesus before he ascended back to the Father. Jesus says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Is this a command or a fact? A command or a fact? Yeah. You know, I could have said to my daughter, you will clean your room. When you think, and that certainly could have been the tone that Jesus took here, you will, be my you will be my witnesses. But last words before you leave them? Perhaps not. I think there's a possibility that this is a statement of fact. When I leave, when I go back to heaven, the Holy Spirit is gonna fill you. And what's the result of the infilling of the Holy Spirit? You're gonna be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. And that doesn't mean sequential. That doesn't mean, guys, cover Jerusalem first, then go to Samaria, then Judea, and then the uttermost. That means simultaneously. You're going to be my, my witnesses across the, the earth. Jesus is saying that's the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I was confronted with that. I don't think it's a stretch to say that my involvement in worldwide missions and evangelism is a reflection of my spiritual health. I don't think it's a stretch to say the involvement of a body of believers in local and global discipleship and evangelism is an indication of how closely they're Programs are aligned with the true will of the Spirit, the two true guidance of the Spirit. So, where do we stand now if, in missions, if we all have the Spirit of God in us that wants the world for Christ? We're all called to a mission to make disciples of all nations, to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. What's the status of missions? Seven and a half billion people on earth. How many are outside the reach of the gospel now? Three billion is the number that's most commonly used. 40% are unreached. And what does that mean? Uh, we throw around the term unreached. Well, technically, that means that in their community or people group, there's 2% or less of those people are evangelical Christians or believe and share the gospel. So practically speaking, that means not only that 98% of those people are not believers, it also means that it is likely that those 98% plus will live their entire life and never hear the truth of the gospel. 40%, 3 billion people of our world are in that state, unreached, out of access. You say, well, you know, I work with someone that's out of access. 
My neighbors are out of access. Why do I need to go halfway around the world to reach the out of access? That's not a true statement. Your coworkers are not out of access. They work with you. Your neighbors live in your neighborhood. You are their access. The three billion we're talking about, those are people that have no chance of hearing the gospel if we continue with status quo. Three billion. And what are, the, what are the implications? What happens when someone lives their entire life, never had the opportunity to hear the gospel, never had the opportunity to accept or reject? What happens to them? All I can say is that without the opportunity to hear, it doesn't make sense if God gave them a pass into heaven while at the same time commanding us to go share the gospel with them. If ignorance was their pass to be with God for eternity, the worst thing we can do is what? Share the gospel with them. Before we go to them, 100% going to heaven because of their ignorance. We go, maybe not all accept. Some are now condemned. It just doesn't make sense. So, three billion of our world out of the seven and a half billion. So then we have to ask ourselves the inevitable question,